Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Holy Spirit, we do just honor your presence. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one who leads us into paths of righteousness for the sake of Jesus' name. you are the shepherd of our souls. Lord, I thank you that every single one of us in here, God, you have given the capacity to sit before you, to hear your voice, to have you lead us. Lead us into righteousness. Jesus, you are the one with eyes of flaming fire, and you search our hearts, and you are jealous to have every single part of us. I thank you, Lord, that you're drawing us into greater and greater humility. your name today, Father. We thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm like shaking. I, um, this, reality that God is the shepherd of our souls. Guys, he is the perfect leader. And when he's leading us to repentance, when he's leading us to step away from ungodly mindsets or ungodly behaviors, it's because he has such perfection of joy and peace for our hearts, for our lives, restoration, and I just, I'm just so thankful. He's never, until he returns, he's never going to stop knocking at the door of our hearts to repent. We have so much work to do in our hearts, you guys. Every single one of us in here. No one is exempt. And I love what Andrew was singing, Holy Spirit, fill the room. And that's not just about being excited and seeing signs and wonders. It's like, God, fill the room so that my heart can be transformed so that I can follow you to, to, to death, <laughs> the death of my flesh over and over again. Anyways, I, I'm just thankful for that. Um, so we say yes and amen to that, Father. Help us, help us follow your small promptings. I thank you, Lord. You are the perfect one, and we're all your, your sheep following you, God. So help us be better followers. Help us embrace this walk of humility. Amen. Amen. For the last 29 days, I've read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
It has changed my life. I think if you've been doing that, I think that that it uh, hopefully will do yours. If you look in uh, your Bible, if it's got the red letters, Jesus uh, talks his words in the first four chapters are just the rebuke of, of uh, Satan tempting him. And then in chapter 5, it all becomes red. This is what Jesus is telling us. And I think it's vital. Pastor Scott has been going over it. He, some t- uh, he did it a time or two in the uh, Sunday morning, and he's been doing it on Wednesday nights. And it's, you know, it's, it's like if Jesus is doing it, then we should be figuring it out. Uh, the song that they just got through saying that it, uh, all this is for you. We're here for him and what he's doing for us. The thing that I want to bring to our attention today is on forgiveness and what he's saying about that. It starts in anger, which is what Pastor Scott was going to do. And I'm not going to, I don't even know what his sermon is, so I'm not going to do do that. But I wanted to uh, read a few things in this. In chapter, verse 21 of Matthew 5, it says, You're familiar with the commandments that the older generation was taught. Do not murder or you will be judged. But I'm telling you, if you hold anger in your heart towards a fellow brother, believer, you are subject to judgment. And whoever demeans and insults a fellow believer is answerable to the congregation. And whoever calls down curses upon his fellow believer is in danger of being sent to hell. Makes you want to think that you should be forgiven people. This is not my story. This is in red letters. This is what Jesus was trying to tell the people that had come out there to hear him. We have people at, in homes that no longer talk to each other. Mom got mad at the daughter, or daughter got mad at mom, or somebody, and we've spent years not talking. We have trouble in workplaces and in churches where we, somebody has done something that we didn't think was right. And so we've changed the course of what we're doing. But it says here, you start cursing folks and you'll end up in hell. That's what should make us think. I know it did me. I, you know, that's one of the two that uh, really got me thinking about this. The Lord's Prayer st- 
says, Our Father which are in heaven, this is the way he told us to pray. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then the next thing that he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. We're always told to repent and get it together. But if you're holding grudges against other people and saying bad things about other people and all of this, Jesus said, your prayers are going nowhere. You're in trouble. And this is going to affect your family, your workplace, your church place, and all this other. It's ugliness. It's one of the things that the devil is going to use. Folks, I don't know how much time we got. But if you check with Israel, that's one of the things. that wars and rumors of wars. We can't hardly have any more wars. If you look at our streets, go to our major cities, it's a sham. We need to figure out that the Lord's, I'm sure he's at least taking notice of what we're doing down here. We need to get along with each other. We need to love one another. The golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophet. And then in chapter 7, verse uh, 21, for everyone who says to me, I, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does not the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Some of these I've done and some of these I haven't done. And then will I declare to them, this is Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness. We can't come to church on Sunday and play with the world the rest of the week. Bible says that you, if you can't love your brother who you can see, 
How are you going to love me who you can't see? We need to figure out that we need get along ability. The stumper would say, if you don't have anything nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. And we need to get to where we don't let our children say bad things about each other. And our co-workers say bad things about other co-workers. And our church members say bad things about other church members. It'll tear all of them apart. I'm about done. The thing that, in, after looking at this, that come to mind, as I said, this is Jesus telling us what he, how he wants us to act and what he wants us to do. And the little thought that come to mind that this is Jesus' word, and if we're not doing and listening to this, who and what are we listening to? If you're having fault with your brothers and saying bad things about them and not doing what we should be doing, I guarantee it's not God. And there's only two real voices out there. You're either doing what the Lord wants you to do or you're doing what the devil wants you to do. And it's going to be a sad day when he says, Depart from me. I didn't know you. We come to church. We go to our jobs. We have our families. But we treat them in the wrong way. And we don't show them the love that they deserve. And the kindness that they deserve. 29 days of reading this every day has made me decide that there's a better way than I'm doing it. It kind of scares me. I think I'm doing somewhat right. But as I said, I've not cast out any demons. I've prayed for people and they got well, but if I don't treat my the rest of the group the way God wants us to and don't walk in the way he asks us to and don't do what he says in this. It's all red. It's all him. He does other things, but this is the way we live. Did I get over its honor your pastor's month and you two are part of it (laughs) let me pray heavenly father i thank you lord for all that you do for the families represented here lord i pray that the marriages would be and grow stronger that your children would respect their parents lord your word says if uh a child for they're they're to honor their mothers and fathers, that this is a first commandment with a promise, Lord, that they would have long and prosperous lives. 
Lord, help us to love one another. Help us to not go to work and talk about our fellow workers or to church and talk about our fellow uh, family that's in the church or at home to talk about each other. But, Lord, help us to seek you and look to you and feel your love. Lord, let your spirit touch this place this morning. And we just pray for Jason, Lord, that you would just bless him and use him uh, for, with your word. We just give you praise for all that you do in our lives. And just ask, Lord, your spirit grow closer to you, to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. If you haven't been reading the chapters 5, 6, and 7, oh, I, Pastor Scott's been telling us for a month. He's been reading them over a month. I got two more days to have this month in, but I don't think I'll be able to stop. This might be the rest of the year kind of thing, because I don't have it all down, I can tell you that. God bless you. Father, we come before you. God, we desire to be transformed by your eternal gospel of grace. Father, we thank you for the power of your word the purity of your message of the word. God, we pray that it would wash us. Father, we pray that by your spirit, God, that we would be transformed into your image. God, that by your spirit, God, we would partner with you. God, to deny our flesh. God, to pick up our cross. God, to follow after you in public and in private. Lord, we give our lives to you. God, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you again for coming to join us as we gather around the Word and around worship. Um, some of you may remember about a, the last time I spoke a month ago, I spoke on the gospel of grace, the, the grace that transforms us. And I, as I said in that message, there was more to be said than I could release in one sermon. So here I am. Hitting the topic again, and who knows if I will speak further on this next month or not, um, but we're talking about the gospel of grace transforming our life. And what presses on me is not just a desire to understand the gospel of grace in a way that encourages us, in a way that awakens our heart to be thankful for what God has done for us, but I'm really faced with the reality of how difficult it is for the grace of God to be fleshed out in our personal lives. It's one thing to be thankful for God's grace towards us. It's another thing to be so touched by it and transformed by it that we in humility, learn how to release it to those around us. So that is the topic for today. I'm going to read a few quotes, the same quotes that I read uh, last month, just to begin to remind ourselves of this topic. So grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely, it is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion. That's by Jerry Bridges. 
You could also say this, grace is the free bestowal of kindness on one who has no claim to it. That's by Louis Burkhoff. I'll say, say it one other way. God's mercy means God's goodness toward, the, toward those in misery and distress. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. God's patience means God's goodness in withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. And that's a quote by Wayne Grudem. So grace, we know that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We know that we are, in that sense, on the same playing field, all of us equally in need of the transforming gospel of God's grace. We desperately need it. I mean, we can look one to another and try to compare the sins that we've struggled with versus the sins that someone else has struggled with, and we, we can get into that debate of whose sin is worse and whose sin has hurt more people or all of that. But at the end of the day, it is God's mercy to be abundantly kind and patient to offer salvation to all of those who have fallen short, which includes me, it includes every other famous theologian, pastor, preacher, every author of every book you've ever read, every speaker of every Christian conference you've ever been to, every famous name in the body of Christ, every author of every book of the Bible, every patriarch of our faith, they have all fallen short of the glory. They have all failed to obtain righteousness in their own strength. They have all failed to prove to their congregations, to their husbands, their wives, their children, all of them have failed to prove perfection in their own heart. And yet, through the gospel of grace, we all have hope. Hope to be transformed, hope of the resurrection of the dead, hope that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I want to look at this reality of grace. I want to look at the nature of God and His grace and begin to understand how we can not just be thankful for the grace of God shown towards us, but how we can learn to release it one to another. So Exodus 33, 19, it says, And he said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So there's power within the nature of God to show grace to any and every individual that he chooses. No matter how egregious their sin and failures, no matter how no matter how they have lived their life, 
the grace of God, the salvation of God is available to all. So in Exodus 34, 6, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. In preparing for this message, I, I had this verse in the notes, just in the introduction of the last time I spoke. And I was looking over those notes, and I, I read this verse again, and I couldn't get past it. I read this verse again, and I began to think about this connection between grace and anger and truth. So on the one hand, we're familiar with the language, right? We, 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 we know that God is compassionate. No, who's going to deny that God's compassionate, that he's gracious? We know God is slow to anger. We've all heard that quoted. But on the other hand, have we looked at the proportions and the interaction of these attributes and actions? So it says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. What does that mean? He genuinely cares and has a tender heart towards humanity. God has seen and has understood and felt the reality of the sin of every human that's ever been birthed. He has seen the actions of every Hitler and every other wicked person that has walked the face of the earth and yet it says the Lord, the Lord God compassionate. He cares and he has t a tender heart towards humanity. Even after all of these many, many years of human history. And then it says he's gracious. God acts kindly toward us. And that measure of kindness far surpasses anything that we deserve. He's gracious. He is full of grace unmerited favor. And then it says he's slow to anger. God is patient with our failures. Do you think that it perhaps includes moral failures? God is patient. Patient with our failures. He's patient. He's slow to anger. He is patient with our poor behavior. He is patient with our sin. And then it says he's abounding in loving kindness. So God is great and overflowing with loyal, covenant-keeping love. He is not fickle. God is reliable in his long-term commitment to us. How many of you can say amen? God is reliable in his long-term covenant commitment to you. No matter what your performance has been in the last three months, the last six years, God is abounding in loving kindness. He is abounding in that covenant-keeping love that lasts far longer than we can imagine. And then he's also abounding in truth. 
He's abounding in truth. Everything that God says and believes is 100% true, right? 100% accurate. God does not manipulate. We know God does not hide, stretch, or falsify anything he says. How many of us have done that? Hide, stretch, falsify, make ourselves look better than we are in light of things that we've said and done. But God is not that way. His perspective, His understanding, and His knowledge of every nuance related to every human interaction is flawless and completely incapable of error. Think about that for a second. His understanding, his knowledge, his perception, his evaluation of the nuance of every single human interaction, positive or negative, in the entirety of human history, his assessment is 100% perfect, incapable of error, incapable of, of, of misunderstanding the facts, incapable of, of mishandling the information or, or misjudging the situation or misjudging the motives of, man, of man's hearts. He is 100% incapable of error. He sees and understands all of it. He knows, he has the data, and he perfectly calculates it. And it, 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 it's not just this impersonal calculation of data. It says he's compassionate and he cares. So he understands everything through and through, cover to cover, every nuance of every side of every argument. And yet, with that perfection of knowledge, he is still full of compassion, full of grace, full of covenant-keeping love that is multi-generational. That is stunning. So how do we become like Him? This God of abundant grace. So let's look again at this connection between these statements. We believe that God is perfect in being and action. So let's look closer at what is and is not present when God comes near. So God just said the, what He's like. So you can assume that when God comes near, that is what's manifested, right? His nature is manifested with and in and through His presence. When His nature is manifested, His kingdom is present, it's manifesting, it's thriving. So if God is slow to anger and full of grace and compassion then we can also say that when we are quick to anger, we are fundamentally lacking God's grace and compassion. Yes? So, again, hear me. The nature of God is to be full of compassion, full of grace, and to be slow to anger. There's an interaction between those realities in God. Those aren't 
compartmentalize different realities. So if me, in my humanness, and my fallenness, if I exhibit a quickness to anger, then there has to be a breakdown in my heart where I lack a revelation and a manifestation of those other attributes of God, of God being compassionate and gracious. In other words, I lack grace when there is quickness in my heart to anger. And this isn't intended to be a rebuke for, for us who, who have struggled with anger, but it's meant to, to stare at the beauty and perfection of God and say, God, how can I learn your ways? How can I learn to be like you? Because this is, this is how you act. So, if we are quick to anger, we are lacking in mercy, lacking in loyal love that is committed to the long journey of covenant keeping. Right? So, God's mercy... That, that commitment to the covenant-keeping love. He is committed to covenant-keeping love. What does that mean for us? That means on, the, on our journey of keeping covenant with our spouse, in our journey of keeping covenant with God, in our journey of committing to, to live with, within the body of believers, that we are called to be like Him. If we are quick to anger, we are also lacking in truth. This is a hard one. Often we justify our anger because we care, it, we care so much about the truth. We've, like, none of us are exonerated. I am not up here saying I've never been angry. Ask my wife. Ask my parents. So we justify anger because we care so much about the truth. Or at least that is what we tell ourselves. We know that sin is deceitful. Yes? Sin literally deceives. Sin doesn't just deceive the people over there, or over there, or over there, right? Sin deceives us. Sin is deceitful. No matter what language you speak, no matter what age you are, no matter how many books you've read, sin deceives. So if we are embracing things like the sin of anger then we must know that there's also deception at play. This means confidence that we have and love the truth and confidence that because we love the truth, we are angry, should tip us off. Obviously, we know there is something called righteous anger. There is the reality of having our heart moved at injustice. But I think more times than not, we probably hide behind that too. 
to say I'm such a lover of truth that I'm angry all the time. I love the truth so much that I'm easily offended. I love perfection of purity so much that I'm going to lash out every time I see anything that's lacking perfection. But yet, if we stare at the nature of God, He's not like that. It says He's abounding in truth. So if God, ha if God has all the data, if He's done all the, co all the connections, if He sees all the motives, He understands. If He understands in perfection, and yet it says He's slow to anger, then I have to reevaluate the whole system of how I think and how I'm interacting. Because I've got to say, wait a second, God. You see all the data. You're overwhelmed with compassion. And in the midst of that, you're slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and grace. He's just like, grace, let me, let me overwhelm you with grace. We know the Bible says that where sin abounds, what does it say? Grace abounds more. I think if we think about it, it we should feel, we should like almost feel the pain of that statement. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Like the, 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 the theology of it, the, the, the truth of it, the theory of it is like, yes, awesome. The God who is abundant in mercy and kindness and grace, he's far more patient with me, wanting me to come to the knowledge of the truth, wanting me to deny myself, wanting me to get free of, of every vice and every addiction and every struggle. That's really awesome. But what I'm wrestling with and what I want to bring us into this wrestle of is not just the beauty of the theology of grace, but it's how do I translate that? How do I, how do I walk in that one to another? And then, and then you stumble on a verse like this. It says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. How many of you know what, what does it feel like Put yourself in that atmosphere. What does it feel like when sin is abounding? Have you ever been through moments and times, season of your marriage, with your kids, with your, with, with your parents, with your boss? Have you ever been in seasons of time where sin is abounding? What does it feel like? Right? I mean, I, I mean I've, I've also spoken of this in the last handful of months. The, the reality of, of the chaos. <laughs> the chaos of, of confusion and accusation and where sin is abounding. What does it feel like? It hurts. Where sin is abounding, we feel the pain. Where sin is abounding, I feel the pain of someone else's weakness. I feel the pain of someone else's failure. I feel the pain of someone else's, of, of, of someone else's 
sin that has touched me. When someone else's weakness, failure, or sin touches me, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts. But yet it says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That means that the pulling down the theory or the theology of grace and learning how to walk in it means I'm walking through crisis, trial, and pain. And I'm staring at the cross saying, God, you do this. You release an abundance of grace and mercy when they don't deserve it. You're patient when they don't deserve it. You forgive when they don't deserve it. You're kind when they don't deserve it. You're full of hope when they don't deserve it. You're full of an overflow of love exactly at the moment when they don't deserve it. You're committed to covenant when they don't deserve it. God is committed to his covenant with you, even and with me, and with us, exactly at the point of our greatest failure, of our greatest sin, when we rail and rage against God and one another, exactly at the, at the, at the height of chaos. God says, my grace is greater. My blood speaks a better word. I am committed to you beyond the worst moment, beyond the greatest chaos. I'm committed to you. Long-term covenant, beyond the stumbling, beyond the anger, beyond the rage, beyond the unforgiveness. Because that's what it says. Where sin abounds. Who in this room loves the atmosphere of sin abounding around you. You know, unforgiveness, rage, anger, accusations flying. How many of you love that atmosphere? But God's nature is to step into that atmosphere and rescue us. Step right into that atmosphere in the height of the storm, the height of the chaos, the height of the, of the I mean, He knows. He knows our understanding of all the nuances of what was said, wasn't said, happened, didn't happen. He knows all the data. He knows that we've been sinned against. How many, how many of you have been sinned against? How many of you hate the pain of being sinned against? And, 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 and in our hatred of the pain, we say we love the truth so much that we demand justice and we refuse grace. But is that God's nature? God's nature is to love the truth so much that he says, you've all fallen short, so get over it. <laughs> Forget the comparisons. Forget the flesh fight. Forget that I can prove that you hurt me more than I hurt you. I can prove that your sin is greater. The 
The call of God is to say, where sin abounds, let grace abound more. In other words, invite God. Invite the overwhelming love of God into the, into the issue, into the pain, into the sin, into the crisis. Invite God. That, and that is the thing that I'm realizing as I'm staring at this topic of grace. Grace is not just an attribute of God. To have grace in our life is to invite God himself. It says that God is the one that's abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is the gracious God. So when we want grace, I'm not just going to God's throne saying, God, teach me a few principles of grace so I can shove them in my back pocket, stomp over here to the issue, and be like, all right, instructions. How do I apply this principle? Where God is still on his throne over there, and I'm over here trying to apply the principle of grace. That's not walking in grace. To walk in grace is to humble myself, come over here before the throne of God, say, God, it hurts. I feel the pain of other people's sin against me. They feel the pain of my sin against them. Teach me your ways, God. Because I don't know how to forgive them like you forgive them. I don't know how to be compassionate like you be compassionate. I don't know how to commit to covenant like you know how to commit to covenant. And then we invite God to lead us. In humility, we invite God to lead me, teach me, walk with me, don't forsake me. Thank you for your patience towards me who also is failing in all of these areas. And we invite God to come with us to then in the midst of the manifestation of the pain and the sin and the crisis, we invite God into that very space and say, God, we welcome you here. Because we're not just saying in the church building, when we put on our fancy clothes and we come in here, we're like, God, we welcome you in this place. To receive the gospel of grace is to not just welcome God here, is to welcome God wherever the sin and the chaos and the trauma and the pain is. We welcome the God of grace into those places, and we say, God, you be God here. You release kindness and mercy and justice here. How many of you know, none of us are 100% sanctified or transformed. This means that unsanctified fleshly ways of relating and responding unfortunately comes natural to all of us. And we can hide that behind our love for the truth. It is still most natural for us to respond to mistreatment with anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, and a desire to retaliate, and a desire for the other person to suffer like we have. And we think if they only understood the level of pain that I'm in related to the sin committed against me, if they only saw and felt the pain, then somehow it would be okay. But we're God's, we're, 
but the Lord says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. In other words, the only solution to sin abounding is the gospel of grace. The only solution. The solution isn't proving that someone else sinned greater than you did. That they're more deeply deceived and they're more deeply troubled and they need more help than you do. It is only the gospel of grace that frees us. Pursuing a lifestyle of grace is living out a commitment to deny ourselves. Pick up our cross and follow Christ. And a commitment to manifesting love for Christ through embracing God's nature and not ours. In other words, to live out a gospel of grace isn't just to thank God for the mercy he's bestowed upon me and then go demand from my brother payment for the sin that they've committed against me. Right? We know that's wrong in theory. In practice, it's hard. Matthew 16, 24 through 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think it's easy to think about this verse. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. I think we know that de- to that call to deny ourselves is a call to holiness, a call to not embrace and pursue sin. But think about this in relation to the interpersonal connections that we all have to deal with. If none of us are 100% sanctified, then that means at some point, in your life, if you encounter me often enough, you will encounter something in me or my character that hurts you. How many of you are excited about that? Let's get to know Jason close enough so that I get hurt. (laughs) So if that's true... If the closer we get to one another, the more likely we are to be hurt by each other. And, and it's not just like hurt as in this general like thing that we can like, oh man, I stubbed my toe, let's just forget about it and walk on. I'm like, w- w- in the real scenarios, it really hurts. It really hurts when someone misunderstands you, they misjudge you, they lash out against you, they whatever it is, they sin against you, it hurts. So it says he must deny himself. So what are some of the things that we have to deny? I mean, it's, again, it's commonly understood that denying ourselves is like these big sins. I have to deny the pursuit of sin in my life. But it's more than that. In order to run after Christ and become like him, and if being like him is to be slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, abounding in, in graciousness and mercy and truth then we must deny ourselves 
And part of that denying of ourself is this reality that I'm going to be mistreated. And am I going to walk out a gospel of grace where I'm becoming like Christ and I'm releasing the measure of grace that God has given me? Again, unmerited kindness toward those who don't deserve it. You don't have to be an English major. You don't have to have degrees and having gone through all these classes on the English language to realize that the call to be gracious is for us to take that grace that God has given us and give it to others. And they need it most when you hurt the most. Hear that. Your friend, your spouse, your pastor, your boss, they need grace the most when their sin hurts you the most, when you feel the pain and trauma of it the most. So to become like Christ is to deny ourselves. In that scenario, when we hurt the most, when we feel the pain of someone else's sin against us the most, to become like Christ is to deny ourselves, to deny our demand of retribution, our demand of justice, of merciless justice, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him. To live a life full of grace and truth is to die. Die to ourselves, die to our demands, die to our version of justice, die to putting our needs first, die to exerting our experience as more important than someone else's. Talk about an impossible message. How many of you are like, yes, yes, God, let me encounter more pain so that I can humble myself more, pick up my cross more, deny myself more, so that more of you lives in me. And so that I'm more transformed into your image. This is God's image. It says he's slow to anger. It says that there's more to the picture than just hating injustice. This ties right into the Sermon on the Mount that Scott's been preaching. Right? The impossible call to be like God. In other words, it exposes our desperate need for God all the time. I will never graduate from hearing or needing to hear the message of God's transforming grace. I will never graduate from needing to be reminded that being like God is more important than me trying to, in my own strength, navigate how to, how to demand justice for the sins committed against me. It's literally impossible for sin never to be committed against you in your life. It's impossible to be married and to not have your spouse's weaknesses and sins hurt you. 
literally impossible. So somehow becoming like Christ means that we, number one, expect that trials and tribulations and hardship and pain and trauma and chaos and sin, that we will feel it. And not just be the victim of it, but that we will also be the perpetrator, needing our own mercy, needing grace from someone else. Our success in applying God's grace to real-world scenarios is going to be proportionate to the degree that we invite God into our present situations and the degree to which we desire Him to teach us and transform our own heart response to the painful and difficult situations we face. In other words, the message of God's grace has to actually it has to actually be put into real scenarios of pain. Otherwise, it's just philosophy. It's just like, oh, I love that message of forgiveness. I just love that message of forgiveness. But when is that message of forgiveness going to manifest in my life? When I've been sinned against and it hurts. Right? So the gospel of transform the transforming gospel of God's grace the only way it's going to mean anything to us in reality and not just be this fancy philosophy that we slap on our wall and we're like ah God calls us to be kind and gracious and merciful isn't that so awesome The call to be kind and gracious and merciful is when people don't deserve it when they have utterly failed you and you hate it when they've utterly failed you and it hurts beyond measure and you don't know what to do with the pain. That is when and where the gospel of grace actually touches our lives. Otherwise, we're just excited about philosophy. We're just excited about the theory that God is kind when we deserve something else. So how much grace should we give? How much grace should we give? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. How many of you know living for yourself takes many forms? Living for yourself is the pursuit of maximum pleasure irregardless of God's call to holiness or restraint. Living for yourself because it has many ways you could describe that. One of the ways that we can describe living for myself is every time pain touches me, I react in anger to control, to take, to take advantage, to, to 
release my own version of justice, that's also living for myself. Living for myself is I need to protect myself, I need to prevent pain from touching me, and I will do anything in my power to prevent other people's sin and pain from touching my life. And then what do we do? We, we become bitter, resentful, arrogant, prideful. We lash out. All those, all those attributes that aren't of God, we take them on in our desire to live for ourselves. But it says, Christ died so that we might no longer live for myself, but for him who died and rose again on my behalf. And then verse 16, it says, therefore... From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. We recognize no one according to the flesh. This is hard. This is like impossible. Right? The moment you've seen... The moment you've felt, the moment you've tasted of the pain of someone else's sin, weakness, or failure, your natural mind can immediately recall it. You can have, a li- you can, you can have your list of wrongs, right? The Bible says love holds no record of wrong. But yet the moment we are negatively touched by someone else's weakness, someone else's lack, someone else's mistakes, someone else's insecurity, someone else's sin, the moment we're touched by it, our natural inclination is, I am going to cement that in my brain and my heart as a memory, and I am going to hold a record of wrong, and then I am going to recognize them according to the flesh. In other words, every time I see them, every time I interact with them, I'm reminded they aren't, they aren't as amazing as they say they are. I could give you the inside scoop of all the ways they've failed over the years. Want to come over? And then we can have a little powwow throwing stones at the, and at the brother that's not at the table. Because we got the inside scoop of all the sin and all the junk in their closet. Yet the Bible says, the love of Christ controls us. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. That's the call. Grace, this unmerited favor, this unmerited kindness toward those who don't deserve it, you got to think about the context. The context is actual manifested sin, actual manifested weakness, actual manifested things that hurt. And yet we're called to let those things go in becoming like Christ and staring at His nature. We say, God, there's a better way. There's a better way than defending myself. There's a better way than lashing out. There's a better way than than exposing my brother's sin to everyone else around me because somehow I feel powerful when I do that. Or I feel self-justified in my pain when I expose someone else's junk. The call of God is to die. And 
as normal. I have many pages of notes that I can't cover. <laughs> I didn't have 10 pages of notes. I only had seven. And somehow I'm two and a half pages in and have run out of time. Lord, be gracious. I just invite Jim to come up. I suppose maybe there will be a part three in a month. How many of you know, I mean, I, just speaking for myself, I, I, if, if I'm honest, I'm not transformed by one message. I'm generally not. In order for something to enter my heart and, and really, re, really change, not just change me intellectually when I'm in a good mood, with a cup of coffee alone, reading a book. But real change, meaning when pain is manifested and somehow I learn to do something different. That transformation, at least for me, requires washing myself with the truth over and over and over and over again and then turning back to the truth and saying I still don't get it God, God I over and over wash me wash me wash me wash me wash me wash me God wash me God wash me God teach me God teach me God I don't know how to do this God teach me God teach me God and I stay humble and I stay hungry for the truth to actually do something in me So I need God to keep a message in the forefront of my mind and heart longer than just a week if that is ever going to flesh itself out in my actual life. So the same free gift of grace that saves us is the same grace that we are called to walk in as we live life in the midst of one another's faults, failures, and sins. So we know it's a free gift of grace. Receiving the gift of grace also means that I'm saying yes to the call to walk in grace. The free gift of God's grace saves our soul. It gives life to our spirit, right? At the same time, though, the grace of God demands and empowers the death of my carnal flesh. The, the grace of God is multifaceted. It's not just saving me as a free gift. The grace of God is also demanding that as a response to that free gift, not just demanding but empowering, as a response to that free gift, it, it, it is putting the path before me that says you now walk in the grace that you've received. And that demands death of my flesh. God is saying, I died for you so that you could be forgiven. Now you die to you so that you can be transformed. God died for us. Now our own flesh must also die so that Christ can live through us. And that, that is the call. So I invite you all to stand.
This is beyond just feeling strong or weak in this present moment. All of us are in desperate need of being touched by this gospel of grace. Not just to forgive us now, but to teach us in the hardest moments of our life how to walk out God's nature and character in front of each other. So if you want to come forward and pray with God, you can. But for my own heart, I'm, I'm just saying, God, this is for all of us. Some of you will come up here, some of you won't. The, the reality is I would just would like to pray for us corporately. So if you want to come and pray with the Lord by yourself, you can, but otherwise I'm going to pray for us. God, we thank you. God, that somehow in your perfection, God, you have chosen to still desire us. God, you've seen all of the pride, the arrogance, the anger, the the sin of our hearts, God, you've seen it all. And God, we pray that your grace would abound more. God, we ask you to transform us from the inside out. God, we pray manifest your power, not just here in the church building, but in our hearts when we feel most alone, most hurt, most traumatized by someone else's sin or our own sin. God, we pray that your grace would meet us there, that your covenant-keeping love would touch our hearts deeply when, when, when and where we need it the most. And God, we pray that you would give grace to each other to all of us, God, so that when we encounter the weaknesses, the failures, and the sins of each other, that we would take on your nature and be patient and kind. We would take on your, nat your nature and be merciful. We would take on your nature and release unmerited favor and grace to those who don't deserve it. God, we cry out, transform us from the inside out. We have no hope apart from you, but with you, God, your commitment to us is that you will make us appear in spotless bride. So, God, we love you, and we ask you, God, in public and in private, God, transform us. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.